Welcome back to South African Border Wars with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 85. We've heard about one recce and four recce in the covert war throughout the series, and at times I've included the voices or the individual stories where possible. Unfortunately, there's not enough space and time to include everyone's personal views or their memories. However, in this episode, I'm going to concentrate on two specific Special Forces members because they epitomize two different aspects of the South Africans who were involved in this 23-year war. The first instance is one that is chilling and horrific, where MPLA soldiers let their base instincts take over when they realized they weren't getting what they wanted and led to the torture and execution of 7 Medical Battalion Corporal Bruce Fiedler in September 1985. The other illuminates the visceral and tactical elements of operating in an African bush scenario behind enemy lines. We'll join Kurs Stadler a year later, in late 1986, as he collected reconnaissance information as an operator. First, Bruce Fiedler. His story exemplifies courage and has a more recent resonance because the unit he fought in, the 7th Medical Battalion, was involved in the infamous attack on South African paratroopers in the Central African Republic town of Bangui in 2013. For those who don't know this story, just a quick reminder. The SANDF was involved in peacekeeping operations in Central Africa, and 200 paratroopers were surrounded in Bangui by at least 3,000 rebels. In a two-day battle, 13 SANDF parabats died, but remarkably, they are thought to have killed up to 800 rebels, all this without artillery, armour or air support. Afterwards, Corporal Mantla Maxwell Ngobesi of 7 Med was awarded the SANDF's leopard decorations, and like his predecessor Bruce Fiedler, his was a case of extreme courage under fire. One of my listeners recently suggested that I focus on Fiedler's story because it's extraordinary. Fiedler was a medical orderly in the SADF's 7 Med, which he joined after matriculating in 1980 from Florida Park High School and ended up an operational medic with Special Forces training. He was part of Operation Magneto, which began in August 1985, where the SADF and other units provided support to UNITA in southern Angola. It was part of the response to the MPLA's advance towards Mavinga, which you've heard about, and Fiedler was among a team of medics, including doctors, that UNITA leader Jonas Savimbi had requested as the battles raged. The rebel movement had very little in the way of medical facilities, and as the fight for Mavinga dragged on, Savimbi asked Pretoria to second medical teams to his units. And so, after Operation Magneto formally ended in August, Fiedler remained inside southern Angola as an ops medic. On the night of 14th of September 1985, 21-year-old Corporal Bruce Fiedler was riding on a convoy of two vehicles carrying two dozen UNITA fighters and four SADF officers, including artillery officers. A platoon of MPLA soldiers ambushed them with RPGs and AKs. Virtually all the UNITA troops were killed and two artillery officers and Fiedler were wounded. Fiedler was apparently too badly wounded to move and the two artillery officers tried to drag him off the back of one of the trucks so they could make their escape in the dark, but the incoming fire was too intense and they were forced to leave him behind. In the dark, a handful of UNITA and three SADF men made their escape. Both the men who tried to save Fiedler were awarded the honorous crooks for their heroism, but Fiedler was captured, still alive, and then subjected to what is described as extreme torture when the MPLA tried to get him to reveal what he knew about the position of the artillery and other units fighting in the south. 
He knew the main surgical station with his comrades from 7 Med was a short distance away. He was also aware of other details of troop movements and materiel. Despite the horrific wounds he sustained via his captors, he refused to talk, and eventually he was executed, taking vital information to the grave. Meanwhile, the nearby triage station staff evacuated. He bought them time. Fiedler received the honorous crooks posthumously. His remains were eventually returned to South Africa in 1992. According to some, the SANDF never revealed the report into forensics investigations as it would have been too distressing. We revisit these stories as a reminder that we are really not worthy compared to these remarkable men. And with regards to the more recent story, there's a book called The Battle of Bangui by investigative journalists Warren Thompson, Stephen Hofstadter and James Otway, published in 2021, that is worth a read. Perhaps one of these days we'll get a movie about that incident. Changing gear and moving forward to where we left off last episode, on the 25th of October 1986, the whole of five Reiki had been congregated in Oshavelo training area just northeast of Itosha Pan. Having spent time in the bush there myself, it is like any other part of Wavumberland, hot, flat, full of thorn bushes and snakes, where the dust hangs in the air at dusk and coats your equipment, jamming automatic rifles and sticking in your throat. This is just across the red line area which divides the farmlands to the south, including the Triangle of Death, from the operational area in the north closer to the cut line. The Rekis were training for something called Operation Colosseum, which was a planned attack deep into Angola on Swapo HQ in their eastern front. I'm using Kurt Studler's excellent book called Reiki, Small Team Missions Behind Enemy Lines as reference, along with other source material for this episode. Stadler was going to be inserted close to Swapo's HQ with his colleague José da Costa as a two-man intel gathering team a week before the assault force. Da Costa is a fascinating person, nicknamed Mr. T after the character in the TV show The A-Team and fitting the description apparently, barrel-chested, not to be trifled with, although unlike the A-Team character, he didn't have a Mohican haircut. Da Costa was born in Lobito of a Portuguese father and Angolan mother, and during the Civil War his family had been broken up by the fighting. He and his sister fled to southwest Africa. He was a war refugee, and his story was repeated by many other Angolans who were forced to flee their homeland. Da Costa had been with Jan Breitenbach when 3-2 Battalion was launched, and was based for a time at Buffalo in the western Caprivi. He moved to SA Special Forces in 1981 and was trained as a recce at Palaboa in 1982. And from a group of 30, he was one of only six who passed that extreme course. The Costa was transferred to 5-3 Commando, then moved to 5 recce to be part of the newly established unit training in small teams missions. Stadler and Da Costa began training together in 1986, prepping for the upcoming op to search for Swapo's HQ. They fine-tuned their weapons and equipment packing and testing radios, memorizing maps and other information. They rehearsed escape and evasion maneuvers and other bush tricks. The Rekis were brilliant at night fighting. Those who can move in the dark even when facing troops with night vision goggles are the soldiers who control tactics. The SA Air Force capacity to fly at night was also an advantage over the Angolan Air Force. It's no surprise to hear what Calvin Klaasvitz says about fighting at night. The order of things, he says, are inevitably disturbed. Not only that, but fundamentally every night attack is a form of surprise, but is also extremely difficult to be successful in any night action. Night puts an end to pursuit, even when the battle has been decided. There is time to rest and rally, or to conduct a march in advance. 
This was the core logic of the South Africans, to move at night. The next day always brings a fresh experience, as long as you allow for some rest along the way. And by 1986, South African Special Forces had taken to wearing Swapu webbing because it was lightweight. But Stadler and DaCosta decided they'd continue to heft the official recce small team big pack because this had aluminium frames and was far more comfortable than Swapu's simple webbing with really heavy stuff on board. There was no cooking for these two once they were across the borders, so there was no need for gas stoves or bulky cylinders. There was no tinned food carried in, only zap meat, a kind of sausage, as well as energy bars and peanuts. They stored vitamin-enriched energy drinks, and up to 80% of the total weight on their backs was the water they'd have to carry along. By the time these two were ready to go, their packs weighed in at close to 80 kilograms. De Costa or Mr. T to his friends carried the HF radio and they walked with Stadler in front, De Costa slightly to his right and 30 meters back. They were going to travel at night and a half moon was forecast, ideal for reconnaissance because the team would have sunlight for the first half of the night march and then no moon in the early morning hours. That was usually the time they were closest or would be closest to their target and no moon meant pitch darkness, which was Good news for the two slinking about in the dark. They'd be inserted by a group of special force operators and three Unimogs, which would leave the UNITA base around 60 kilometers from the target area and travel for 20 kilometers towards where they thought the Swapo HQ was supposed to be situated. Da Costa and Stadler were tasked with identifying its location precisely. As they rehearsed for this special insertion, there were a few problems with comms. They would be forced to communicate via the radio comms men sitting at the recce signal section regimental HQ, which would relay messages as required to other units. That wasn't ideal. It was better to have a dedicated line and support signals, frequencies, and so on. Now they were sharing time, but after they practiced the codes and processes, it was decided to go ahead. Officer commanding of five recce, Colonel James Hills, led the briefing for the full attack, which would follow the reconnaissance mission. A large sand model of the region had been built under a tent canopy. Intelligence Officer Major Dave Drew explained the specific threats. Then 5-1 Commando Intelligence Expert Captain Robbie Blake outlined the target briefing of Swapu's Eastern Front HQ, while the entire 5 Reiki and elements of 101 Battalion and 2 Reiki Reserves gathered around. The main attack was going to be led by Major Duncan Reichardt's 5-2 Commando, supported by 101 Battalion and 2 Reiki. 5-3 Commando under Major Nick Dutoy was going to be deployed as stoppers north of the base once Stadler and Da Costa had located it, of course. A mortar platoon would also offer fire support. Intelligence believed the Eastern Front HQ was a typical guerrilla base. Up to 350 cadres lived there and the defence included a couple of 82mm mortars, three 60mm mortars and at least three DSHK 12.7mm anti-aircraft machine guns as well as SA-7 shoulder-fired missiles. Swapo also had early warning posts deployed at least four kilometres to the east and the south of the base and they were patrolling constantly. The recce's refer to these as hunting patrols. By now, the SADF knew that this base was close to a southward flowing river with a small track passing east-west through it. This was the intersection Da Costa and Stadler needed to find. They knew roughly where it was based on radio intercepts and swapper cadres who'd been captured and interrogated, but other than that, they guessed it was probably inside an area around 50 kilometers square. That's a lot of area to recon, 
as you're going to hear, the search was going down to the wire. Da Costa and Stadler's role was to pinpoint this base exactly and to determine where the assault force should form up, the direction it should attack, and positions for both the mortars and the stopper group. Stadler privately thought that his small team of two had maybe bitten off more than they could chew, because he and DaCosta had a scant six days to do all of the above. Just to add an extra dimension to this insertion, Fapler's 3 Fire Brigade was at Tichumotiti, which was 60 kilometers northwest of the target, and the Angolan army had also stationed tactical groups at Kasinga and Kuvalai, west and southwest. Then there was an entire Cuban regiment at a small town in the north, and the Angolan Air Force was operating out of Menong, 80 kilometers away to the northeast. All in all, this was going to be an extremely difficult recce, let alone the follow-up assault. The column departed in the early morning of the 3rd of November, and by first light they were close to the cut line west of the Kubanga River. They crossed that night with the logistics section in tow, everyone joining up north of the border later, and then they travelled along a UNITA route to the forward base 60 kilometres east of the target area. Stadler and Acosta would then move forward in the Unimogs, while the attacking force stayed where they were, the pressure was on. This was one of the first attacks the SADF were going to launch where the initial recce was going to lead directly to an assault. Usually there would be correlating intel gathering, photography, second missions, double checks, and here, if the two-man team was rumbled, that would be the end of the entire assault. Stadler brought this up with Colonel Hills, who fobbed him off with the line, Faspet Kursi, Egviet Yilakan. Hang in there, Kursi, I know you can. When Stadler continued arguing, Hills cut him short. The base is there, and you'll find it. Pretty much, that's an order. Even if they didn't find it, Hills said the assault force would begin moving in the direction after six days anyway. So four days later, the mobile assault force arrived at Unita's forward base. The rebel commander there was not a happy chappy. Here was a large group of special forces bristling with machine guns and mortars, roving around his territory. With all the revving and smoke and dust, the South Africans could give away his base, and with the Angolan MiGs and attack helicopters only 80 kilometers away in Manong, you could understand his concerns. He didn't want the SADF attracting undue attention to his unit. While that was being sorted out, Da Costa and Stadler leapt aboard one of the Unimogs and they headed off towards where the SADF intelligence thought Swapo's HQ was likely to be for their insertion. After 20 kilometers, they stopped at last light. So far, no tracks, no sign of life. The clock began ticking on the six-day recce. They climbed off, the vehicles withdrew, and the two men walked along the Unimog tracks, hiding their prints. It gets dark fast, and after obscuring their tracks, the Costa and Stadler moved off into the undergrowth. Then it was dark, but a half-moon rose. The sound of the Unimogs drifted away until all was quiet. Using the moonlight, they covered around 15 kilometers that night and into the morning, constantly deploying anti-tracking movement techniques, but that also slowed them down. The moon set at 2 a.m., so they stopped for a few hours' sleep. At dawn, they were on the move again, now using the rising sun behind them. Traveling in the bush or open felt using a rising sun makes sense because your foe is blinded. By mid-morning, they stopped. They'd found no spoor, no sign of life. They set up a hide, listening and watching. Hours later, as the sun began to dip in late afternoon, explosions could be heard far away in the westerly direction. Stadler took a bearing and logged it, drawing the direction on his map. They couldn't continue their search yet. The sun was now very much against them, a dangerous time, 
So they waited until the rays were shielded by the tree line, then set off again. Once again they moved fast, continuing well into the night, where the moon shone brightly once more, and they repeated their previous night's actions, sleeping at two up at dawn. Eventually they ran into Swapo tracks, but these were some days old. Still, they now put on their anti-tracking booties, and by mid-morning had stopped again. Explosions thudded once more in the late afternoon. Mortar practice, whispered da Costa. Stadler logged the direction. They both decided to approach the area in a series of angled movements rather than straight in, first passing the target. Then they turned and moved towards it. This would be by far the most dangerous part of their assignment. Night fell. They stalked Swapo, but still no sign of the space, although they found fresh tracks. The next day they were off before dawn, and then later they heard AK-47s firing and logged the direction, which was now slightly south. That night they moved northwest of the bearing, past the hot area, then they heard vehicles. This moving trigonometry exercise had paid off. At first light, on morning four, they were hidden in a thicket, backpacks out of the way, carrying only a little food and water, radio antenna up and camouflaged. They knew that a patrol could pop up at any moment, but they also knew that a stationary team had the advantage in this situation. In the flat countryside, even with the bush about, a moving patrol or even a moving individual is invariably the first to be seen. Also, there's no advantage to climbing a tree for looking out. All that would happen is that you'd be blinded by the tree canopy and you'll expose yourself at the same time. If they tried to move towards Swapo's base, they'd run into the same problem. They'd set up their own layup position with a clear view for themselves, so the fourth day passed. Now they had less than 48 hours to find the base. Stadler radioed a coded message explaining what they'd seen so far. Back at Unita's forward base, Colonel Hills was frustrated and replied, Unita getting restless. Have to move in two days. Skameballer which means foam balls, which are generated between a horse's butt when it heats up. So the message was, hurry up. That night they moved from their northwestly bearing to due west, but slowly now, the base was very close. The moon was behind them, an advantage, but only if someone was stationary directly in front of them. They skipped from shadow to shadow, slow, painstaking stuff, anti-tracking with every step, using only hand signals. It took them some hours to cover three kilometers. Stadler reckoned the base was still further south, so they stopped and quietly discussed next steps. They decided to keep their heavy backpacks on as they crept closer towards Swapo's base. A few hours later, the moon set and they stashed their heavy packs. Now they were traveling light. As first light broke, they stealthily approached where they believed Swapo was based, only managing a few hundred meters, slowly listening out. They had now come across numerous tracks, and they'd also discovered many tree trunks, a telltale sign of the base nearby, but still no Swapo. The sun was up. It was too light to continue. They withdrew to where they'd hidden their packs and laid up once more. Day five. They radioed Hills, who was beside himself, and he pointed out that the force was going to attack the next day, come what may. As the sun set, they kitted up, then used a technique known as caterpillaring to patrol at snail's pace. It works like this. Da Costa would move forward with his light webbing, then return to pick up the heavy pack, then both would move forward to Da Costa's last position with heavy packs. Stadler would put down his heavy pack and move forward with only his light webbing, then he'd return, and so on. 
caterpillaring. At midnight, there was no sign of Swapo. Maybe they'd missed the base. Was it west of their position? Time was running out. Still no sign of the river, nor the track that was supposed to run east-west through the base. They rested that night, and just before dawn on day six, moved off in light order, stashing their heavy packs to enable quicker movement. They turned south, then west, and there, in the half-light, they hit the jackpot. A road ran east-west, and it was covered with fresh tracks, which all headed east, away from the base. An early morning patrol from Swapo had just passed, so they turned west, then spotted the river. They had found the junction intelligence had mentioned, the junction between the river and the road. This was the floodplain across which Swapo's arc of fire would be trained. They still couldn't see the base itself, so in the early morning light, the two began leopard crawling in the short grass towards the river line when a Swapo patrol of five men suddenly walked into view. They didn't see the Rekis lying prone nearby and continued their patrol along the river line south. A close call indeed. Then De Costa and Stadler heard a car door slam followed by men laughing. The two lay there listening and trying to size up the base using the sounds. Then they crawled back to the tree line making sure to leave no drag marks on the wet grass the morning dew had fallen. They withdrew two kilometres and then reported on the radio that Base found! Enemy number unknown! Need one day and night to confirm! Hill's voice came through on the HF radio, urgent if not frantic. Negative! Negative! No time! I need you here tomorrow morning! We are moving tomorrow! The Costa looked at Stadler. 60 kilometers to go, enemy all around, and they were supposed to be back at Junita's position in 24 hours. As night fell once more, the two began to pick up speed away from the Swapo base, anti-tracking as they went, and ended up almost trotting along as they drew further away from Swapo's base. By daybreak, they had covered 30 kilometers, a remarkable feat. They were also back where they had been dropped off, around six days before. As they waited for the Unimogs, and just to make sure they weren't going to be shot by friendly fire, Stadler took off his shirt, exposing his farmer's tan so that fire recce troops didn't shoot them by mistake. The Unimogs finally showed up mid-morning to pick up the two after a successful stint of small team missioning. What happened next is for episode 86. Please rate the podcast on iTunes. It helps raise the visibility of the series. If you want to contact me, you can head off to abwarpodcast.com. There's a contact form on the homepage. Or direct message me on Twitter, at Des Latham. Until next, ciao.